Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Metallica podcast, Volume 1, The Black Album, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Lars Ulrich. I think when we walked out of that studio a year later with the Black Album in our pockets, I don't think anybody at our end thought we were going to work together again. James Hetfield. It was like letting the enemy into your inner circle. It really was. Kirk Hammett. The great thing about Bob was he brought out a lot of the subtleties in our playing that I didn't even think we were even aware of. And that was just a great thing. The Metallica Podcast. The Black Album. This is side two. Bob rocks. James Hetfield, Metallica vocals and rhythm guitar. We fashioned ourselves as producers and, you know, we got so into what Metallica was for us. We kind of maybe lost a little track of what it meant to the rest of the world. (laughs) We noticed live that, all right, you know, the set list was 10 songs, you know, or something. I want to play more songs, um, so let's write some shorter songs. And that's where all that came about, that we might need some guidance with production. We knew that. Lars Ulrich, Metallica drummer and co-founder. We were still sort of these kids trapped in these sandbox bodies, still, you know, a little unsure of where it was going. Are we forfeiting control How do we explain this to our fans? You know, we're trying to figure it out. (laughs) We know we've got to change. We know we've got to turn left to right. Having a real producer, I think we all kind of felt that that was necessary at the time. We we went down that one-way road and we were at the at the dead end or the cul-de-sac or whatever. And we couldn't go any further that way, any more progressive, any more self-indulgent or us thinking this is the best thing for us. Like James is saying, we've run into that wall at the end of the cul-de-sac. Bob Rock, the Black Album producer, Little Mountain Sound Studios, Vancouver. The thread to, I guess, our friendship and how the album went is at the beginning, we both, agreed that we weren't going to compromise on anything. So whatever it took to satisfy what Lars wanted to hear, Jason, James, uh, Kirk, we didn't compromise whatsoever until the last week of the mixing. (laughs) It was like they had worked with Fleming Rasmussen before me, and that's pretty much all they knew in terms of studios is his the way he made records. And when so we talked, I said, Well, obviously that worked, but this is how I make records. This is what I've learned how to make records. Kirk Hammett, Metallica lead guitar. And that's at the very beginning. This is at the very beginning before he played like a note. Okay. That's how the stage was set. And, And so it was like he had to like work his way into each one of our psyches. And he eventually did. And we... We're so confrontational, so like passive aggressive and so sarcastic about it the whole time. You know, it was just like it, oh, at the end of it, it felt like, you know, going to the studio was like going to war. That That's kind of what Kirk is saying that just led to this moment. And now we're spending a year in a fucking confined space. This is holier than thou, take nine. 
This is the 172 beats per minute one with the number two snare and number four tom. It's scary. It was fucking scary. Oh my God, I remember you know, the first time we got together with Bob Rock in a room with our instruments. I mean, we're sitting over here in, in Point Richmond in a, in a rehearsal room and we're playing some of these songs and all of a sudden he had an idea. Why don't you try to do a different key there? No. Like, Holy fuck, what? <laughs> modulate. Don't, Shut up. Yeah, modulate. Don't get, <laughs> he said modulate there. Yeah, don't fucking tell us what to do. These are our songs and fuck you. Go, you know, back to where you came from. I mean, it was like... <laughs> and we went through all the arrangements and found the keys. And basically what I did in pre-production, I would write down kind of the tempo of the song because tempo is important. Finding the right tempo for a song because one beat can make such a difference in terms of feel. And then the keys. And after six songs in, the key was always E. And, you know, and I said, you, why is everything in E? And James said to me, it's the lowest note, right? Which is, and I'm going like, yes, but Sabbath and all these other bands tuned down to D. So they tuned down to D and we did Sad But True and that's in D and that had a huge influence on the sound of Sad But True. That's pre-production. And certainly that energy of suspicion, I think suspicion is a great word, and it lack is. of trust, yeah. it was just a different thing than what we were used to. And it took us a while to get comfortable, to accept, to trust. Well, yeah, you bring up a good point that it, it was like letting the enemy into your inner circle. It really was. Here's a rehearsal place where... We didn't really have anybody ever show up in there, you know? And, and then all of a sudden, there's this producer from the other side, you know? He's he's sitting in here. What does that mean to us? Uh-oh, you know, have we made the wrong choice? So it was it was a big growth moment for us, but it wasn't overnight, that's for yeah. sure. It took the whole record to get there. I can remember just all of us being very guarded. And I can also remember a lot of us uh, just like having our conversations uh, amongst each other about Bob. You have to understand that for those first four albums, it literally was us four and an engineer. And we're so used to working that way. And we're yeah. so used to just like, in ha we had our own process, you know, and we had run to the end of that process, but still it was our process. And we held it very close to our hearts because it worked for us. It worked for us for that long. And I think there is a feeling of, you know, we didn't want to, to just 
open up to anyone and just like let let people into that our world because it was our world and that's it was our creative space and that's how we got our sound that's how we got our music that's where all the ideas came from and to let someone into that like very 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 small circle was really daunting at first i think a lot of the fear for me was seeing other bands that have lost their drive or their integrity by allowing a producer to really just take it over. Yeah, and you and you hear about that a lot, you know, a producer coming in and, and all of a sudden telling people how to write the songs, play the songs, you know, talking to them about, about their approach, their attitude. Or when the band's gone, they're re-recording stuff over there. Yeah, you know, they're, they're bringing like the... other musicians and like laying stuff on there. We're kind of like aware of all that stuff, but I mean, and James kind of like uh, touched on it too. When I'm hearing you talk, it, it reminds me of how defensive we were. All of our energy was put into defense <laughs> yep. to keep it out instead of offense of, hey, where... Where can we make this better? There was a juxtaposition inside of us that we want to get better. We want to evolve. We want to grow, but we don't know how to do it. And you're not going to tell us how to do it. So we were stuck kind of in this, you got to grow at some point. We couldn't be more defensive anymore. We had to let something in to help us grow. I'm always proud of the fact that we did the right thing in the moment. I'm right. just saying when you start questioning or kind of going what were we thinking Brian Slagle founder Metal Blade Records they felt that they kind of had gone as far as they could I think on justice and so there's definitely talk about number one making the, the record sound a lot better and number two making the song shorter and not quite as progressive which I thought was a great idea because justice like how do you top that so I knew the mindset going in was that and Bob Rock made complete sense when they said they were going to work with him I was going oh, perfect perfect The seeds for those left turns that happened, you know, like James is talking about bringing in a producer, you know, us being so fucking controlling of our own destiny that we refuse to let anybody else be part of that creative circle, even the other band members to a degree, you mm -hmm. know, and, and so on. That that was all sown kind of right around that time. Got it. Yeah. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Metallica Podcast Volume 1. The Black Album. Side 2 continues. Our ears were burnt. We didn't know that this didn't sound as great as it possibly could have been if we had a producer and we just paid attention to playing the music. <laughs> so that was, I think, a realization that, you know, it's okay. We can ask for some help. We want more muscle. And at that point, we realized it's okay to ask for outside help because we still have the vision. We know what we want to do. We just don't know how to get there. And, you know, and that whole philosophy is, I know I'm smart because I know where I'm stupid <laughs> or don't know. So I'm going to ask. And that was a big, a big change for us, you know, because we, we were, maybe it was our upbringing. Maybe it was just of our gang mentality of stay out stay out. No one, no one comes in here. Someone's going to screw this up. And Lars and I we were very tentative on who we were going to allow in. I, I agree with everything James is saying. I, I think an additional element is that there also was kind of a fuck you to the rest of the world very early. I mean, we, we were living in our own world. We felt kind of disenfranchised, a little alienated. You know, there was a a kind of a scene and a culture that we had never felt that we were really part of. And I think along with, with our managers, you know, Cliff, you know, was so protective of keeping the machine of the record industry, the music industry away from us that, that for better or worse, it was the right thing to, to shield us from all that hoopla and all those conventional ways of doing things. David Frick. Rock critic, Rolling Stone. Bringing Bob Rock in as a producer was, I think it was actually meant as a challenge to themselves. You know, they had largely produced the first four records essentially on their own. They had worked with Fleming Rasmussen in Denmark, and a lot of the Danish connection there was because of Lars, and it was expedient, it was a good idea, it got the work done. But by working with Bob, they were looking at themselves and saying, you know, we don't have all the ideas, we don't have all the answers, and sometimes we don't do shit right. So maybe what we need is someone who can advise us on this, challenge us, and say, hey, it's worth doing again. Cliff Bernstein, Metallica manager, co-founder, Q Prime Artist Management. Oh, I think that we were way past that, that no base thing. We're looking at, at, at a dynamic unit here. Everybody inclusive, we wouldn't be using Bob Rock to make that kind of a, a record, like the Justice record. Bob Rock wouldn't stand for that. This had to be a record that was solid pretty much in every frequency. And that production would hold up over time. And 
It did. Jason Newstead, Metallica bassist from 1986 to 2001. I was happy when Bob Rock showed up because of the bass frequencies he was able to achieve on the other records and the way he came in with that attitude and knowing how to reach that. I'm just playing my punk bass mostly on that big string. The other ones sometimes, but just that big string, knock the piss out of it, you know? And he, he taught me how to do that thing and embrace the band with that sound like that, be with that warm hug with, you know, under up underneath and woo like that. And he really helped me do that. The producer is the sort of the, I don't want to say the all-seeing ear, but it the producer has to be the person in that space who is hearing everything and how it fits together, the layers of it, the finesse in a performance, the way someone puts a little English on a phrase in a vocal or accents this particular line versus that particular phrase. A producer is really hearing all of that and has to figure out, you know, how is this going to work as a whole? How is it going to work as a unity of ideas, each of which could possibly stand on its own but wouldn't be complete without the others? And the band can do that to some degree, but frequently the band is so far into the middle of everything, the genesis of it, you know, figuring out who does what and how. If you don't have that direction, just a little bit above the fray, it's like you're standing on top of a hill watching a battle take place. This is what generals do. Where do I put this platoon? Where do I put that artillery? How am I going to get the other guy to make the mistake that I need to win this particular aspect of the battle or the war? And really, a producer is kind of doing that. Producer is a general. At some point, you know, it's like, okay. It was like, I think we finally realized that we could slowly start being part of this as long as it was just on our conditions it was like okay we can bring somebody in as long as they're like-minded we're not gonna surrender you know by, by having somebody else in the studio doesn't mean that we we're selling out or we're surrendering like james is saying you know it's there's still our songs we're just we're acknowledging that we need help or somebody else's experience to see the vision through do you know what i mean and so mm -hmm. i mean we're still what are we uh, by this time, I mean, we're almost 10 years later after we started. So, I mean, we're in our 20s now. <laughs> we're not like eight-year-old little kids going, eh, stay away. Physically. So we're, what, 26, Mentally. 27. And, and obviously, <laughs> I mean, so we're coming up on 10 years now. And, and it was like, okay, we're growing up a little bit. We can, we're suspicious. We're still fucking <laughs> autonomous. But okay, fine. What records? Okay, the Motley Crue, Dr. Feelgood, eh, Maybe we don't agree with Motley Crue in, in the aesthetic or whatever, but when you listen to the opening, whatever, 48 bars of Dr. Feelgood and hear that bass thump along with a kick drum, you go, holy fuck, that's really cool. I know they were fans of Bob Rock's productions from other albums that came out at the time. 
especially with Motley Crue, because you could really hear in Motley Crue a huge progression in the, the sound of their albums from the first to the point where they were using Bob. Bob came from completely the other side. He came from the, a side, the side of the pond where Motley Crue, Bon Jovi, Loverboy, all these bands who weren't us, and all, you know, all these bands who kind of like looked at us as kind of like ugly outsiders, you know, he was one of them. He was, he was, he was from that side, the opposite team. He was on the beautiful side. We yeah, were the ugly. We, exactly. Runts. I didn't want to say it. I didn't want to say it. But, but he was telling Team Beautiful, and then he came to the, the on the team ugly dogs, you know, raggedy dogs, and into our inner circle. So I mean, you know. The insertion of it all—it <laughs> was just yeah. shocking to us. Yeah. I, I, I think you, you really have to remember, and that's at the very beginning. This is at the very beginning before he played like a note. Okay, that's how the, the stage was set. And you know, even though Bon Jovi represented something different at the time, I mean, you can't disagree with those Bon Jovi records that. Bob was part of with Bruce Fairburn. You can't disagree with that Motley Crue record. You can't disagree with the the Cult Sonic Temple and a few was it Blue Murder and a few other things, right? It was like they told me that they liked a couple things, like they liked the the size of Doctor Feelgood, right? The, I call it weight, you know, this heaviness, okay? And they said that, and they liked this the Electric Boys album and the Cult album. And yes, they were slick, but not really. I don't consider them slick. They they just sounded great. Sing along when you fucking know the words and uh, move your body when you feel necessary. Okay! Now the thing is, is I saw them on the Justice Tour. And when I saw them, I had bought the Justice album. And, you know, I kind of got what was going on. Everybody had you know, a Metallica t-shirt, so I bought that and I listened to it. And you know, the Sonics, I mean, it's become iconic, the sound of that album. But to me, especially after seeing them, I went, you know, they don't sound anything like that record live. What I saw live was this fucking huge, weighty, sonic thing that's just not as represented in studio. I never knew I was ever going to work with them. But to me, when they said, you know, we like that, and then when I heard certain songs when they came up to Canada, I just went, I can do this because I can, what I saw, I can do this sonically. Big Mick Hughes. Wow, I mean, song structures, tones that they captured. You know, I've always loved Bob Rock. I think he's a fantastic producer great musical sensibility he made real songs real you know the band had a million ideas in the beginning they were young and they and they felt like they had to cram a hundred ideas into one song when in reality that was probably a hundred songs you know so they they just wanted it they wanted to they couldn't wait they wanted everything so i think the Black Album was an education for us all. And so we asked Bob to do the record. The band went in and they came up with this amazing 
batch of songs. So I guess I'm sitting there in 1991, and I'm not, you know, A&Ring the project or anything. I'm just therein with Bob Rock, who I know is a fantastic producer and a good songman to boot. I heard it when it was all finished. I mean, I can't tell you for a fact it was mixed and mastered, but it was, it, you could tell, you certainly could tell what they had there. Alice Cooper. Bob Rock is really a cool producer, very cool guy. I mean, you look at it, what he's done, and he's a rocker. I mean, I've had him on stage before playing guitar. He's a rock and roll guy. I would imagine him sitting down with Metallica and going, where are we going? What's our journey going to be? You know, what's our storyline here? Okay, fine. We'll fly to Vancouver. We'll meet this guy. We'll give him a hard time. <laughs> we were certainly interested in the sonics. Yeah. That those were powerful. And just imagining... Our songwriting, our song style, our you know metallicness with that production, it it's it felt it felt scary, but it felt right. It felt like this is what we this is the next step. This is what we need. The good news is we're open to letting somebody in. The bad news is that we haven't matured enough to actually trust that person, and so. Trust was such a big part of it. And so we were still cynical as fuck. We were still suspicious as fuck. The Palers happened while I was learning to be an engineer. I was working at the studio. So it was kind of, I guess when I started producing, I brought that, all of the, the things that I did before as an engineer and as a mixer. And as a player, just knowing kind of like how a musician feels. You know, going into a studio can be very uncomfortable. And I saw all the problems, all the rules in studios that really got in the way of making great records. So I think that experience really helped me because I focused. I looked at the studio as, as basically a haven for musicians to be comfortable and make the best record they want. But getting the guitar sound, we were both involved. I figured out a way that I could do what I normally do to the drums and everything else and not compress James's guitar. That's the sound of that. A lot of it, like, it's like we could never recreate that sound because it was like stacks and stacks of a process. It took us probably a week to get it right. And when we got it right, and he actually, he became my friend because I got him a good guitar sound. Before that, it was, who knows? I wasn't really in the club until... I got him the guitar sound on on the album, right? Then he kind of liked me. You know, Bob Rock's a big uh, gear junkie, and he has so much stuff. And that was really when I was very open to exploring different things. And guitar-wise, sound-wise, I never would have played any other guitar but my V or my Explorer. But getting into, you know, Gretsch's or different sounding guitars, different sounding amps, really like Bob had his own vintage music store. And you kind of just, oh, hey, what's that do? And oh, what about that? 
Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The Metallica Podcast Volume 1. The Black Album. Side 2 continues. The one thing that Bob said to us, I, I remember him just like reiterating at the very beginning was he kept on going on about how no one has ever recorded us with the power and fury that he observed while seeing us live. No one has caught that, who was able to catch that in the studio. And that was a, 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 like a main tenet of his whole approach was to try and capture the energy, the power, the precision, the velocity, you know, all those other adjectives in the studio. And, and so the suggestion was to start playing together in the studio to catch, uh, catch the dynamic of us playing together and live, basically. That's where that all started. That's what was so freeing at that point. That's when I realized that he's helping me grow right here, and he's helping the band go to another level. Bob was always great to talk to because of the fact that he was a guitar player, mm -hmm. and you can really get down to the real nitty-gritty about things like phrasing and uh, leaving holes in, in, in spaces in your playing and touch. I mean, things that... A heavy yeah. metal guitar player doesn't really think about it. Well, drawing the listener in by not overplaying. Yeah. By actually having them, you know, their ear gets bigger at a certain point to hear what you're doing, and it draws them in. That's what Bob, I think, put on the map for us as well. Yeah. That through subtlety, you can make more dynamics, yeah. which we were really about, but didn't know exactly how else can we grow in that department. Because for me as a guitar player, it was, all right, I'll, I can do the tasty melodic stuff, but Kirk's the guy who, if you want it to rip, you just plug him in instead, you know? But I think at that point, it sounds like you were able to get into more of the subtle yeah. guitar playing. Recording Hetfield's guitars. Are you fucking kidding me? I mean, that guy, when, when he gets his mind on it, when James is focused, there are mistakes. It does not happen. It just goes like a machine. Sick. Even sitting down, playing that fast, sitting down, down picking, sitting down. Still did it in those days, man. Just, oh my God, he probably still can now too, but that was real. 
So you're the guy that's been, you got the fucking crown on and you're sitting up at the SSL and, and you got the dude that actually the rhythm of metal, the best rhythm player of metal right there showing you how it's done. Even though you know all the chords on guitar with pop rock music, you don't know that. The great thing about Bob, I think, that I, I, we all experienced was he kind of underlined all the individual dynamics within all of us, you know, dynamics in all our playing. He brought out a lot of the subtleties in our playing that I didn't even think we were even aware of. And that was just a great thing. He was just so important in putting our heads in, in, in different places that musically that I think we, we hadn't experienced at that point. Thank and I you. Was just, I was just like, <laughs> thank you, Kirk. <laughs> I, looked at, I looked at Bob and I was like, Bob, it sounds, sounds amazing. And Bob's like, yep, thanks. You know, yeah, I know. And then, yeah, it turns to Randy. Oh, it's got blah, 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 blah. And I was just like, oh, it's like, and kind of like just walked out thinking, wow, man. Adam Dubin, documentary filmmaker. Thankfully, I think, with great insight and great thought, Bob Rock, who's just a great, smart producer, had the Metallica guys record the drum tracks but all together in the room and i came to find out they'd never done that before i think it would just be james and lars in in the big room so i think that vibe added to you know the fact that they were all contributing they were all around you know still recording drums but you had that energy from everybody now visually it looked amazing and of course it's there on in the film but i think also the energy was right that that each each of them, all four musicians, were contributing to the music. You know, I, I guess the Black Album, he became a singer. I'm not sure if it was Nothing Else Matters or The Unforgiven first, but he said, I really like the sound of the Chris Isaac song, Wicked Game. So we, I just got him the sound. And then when he heard his voice sound like that, it just opened up everything. Never open myself this way Life is You know, when it came to the Black Album, Bob, that was one of his main goals. He said, you know what? We're going to get some character out of your voice. We're going to stop doubling it because, you know, when you double your voice, you don't want to do something too crazy that you can't double it, you know? So just doing a single voice, single take was a new thing for me, and I really liked it. You know, I was able to get more creative, take a few more chances here and there. So that was a, another great adventure that Bob pushed me into, and I'm glad he did. Super grateful for that. Him how he recorded before and he said well I'd sing a line get the line right and then we double it which is there's two tracks of vocals right and then we move to the next line and I said well why would you do that and he said well it sounded big and I said well if I get a vocal sound that sounds big you don't have to double it I can get you a vocal sound that sounds amazing 
so you can just sing whenever you want and you don't have to double it. You see, the process of doubling, you have to, it's almost like it's limiting what you can do. So that was one of the things that I kind of said. And as soon as he found that freedom, he enjoyed it. Bob Rock, what he did was he brought a sensibility that allowed them to think in terms of songs, not just composition. Those are two different things. So no matter how crazy any of us might have made Bob, it had to be a thrill at a few different spots where James did a thing or I hit a note or got low on something, 12-string bass here, whatever, little vocal. He had it, ooh, I think we're onto something. You know, there had to be those times like, yeah, we're gonna make the great record, let's make a great record. That bass sound is part of the weight of the Black Album. And once again, like I said, if I would have just told Jason to that this is what we're gonna use, he became part of the process of finding what his sound was. And that comes from his, what did I learn? And I realized that when I work with producers that told musicians what to do, right? In the, like the first studio albums, the drummer would bring in their drum kit and the producer would say, no, you're not using yours, you're using that one. And that one, they've never played and all, everything's dead sounding, you know what I mean? That process came into the thing with Jason. He became part of the process. Same with James, same with Lars in terms of their sound. I just helped them realize what they wanted. Rob Halford, Judas Priest. You have to admire bands like Metallica. You are the biggest metal band ever, but you still have the understanding that you need somebody at the helm. You need a producer at the helm to realize your dreams and your ideas. You need somebody, it's your job, it's Lars's job to do the best drum takes that he can do. It's James's job to do the best vocals, guitars. Everybody has this thing to do. It's the producer's job to take all of these ingredients and make it work, you know? And it's, it's terribly difficult to do. Uh, so it's a combination of believing in your producer and at the same time, being able to have discussions and being very open and not holding back and talking everything through, every nuance through. There's just things that that you do that make people... You make the journey of hearing a song an enjoyable journey. Like, for instance, you'll add a harmony. You'll change the bass line. You'll change the feel, you'll add all those things that you do. And they didn't really do that before. You know, so there's harmony was introduced in some of the songs. And all that does, it's not like harmonies as in Queen or whatever, but just, it's just like a texture that gets added. And you just, you're actually not focused on it, but you just feel it. And that's what you learn about making records. Ron Quintana, Bay Area DJ. We weren't sure about this thing called Bob Rock and the Black Album, but uh, it, it turned out okay, didn't it? <laughs> Woo! Amazing, amazing, amazing record. I think when we walked out of that studio a year later with the Black Album in our pockets, I don't think anybody at our end thought we were going to work together again. But somewhere uh, as the record got out and got shared with the world and we started loosening up a little bit and realized that we had done maybe more right than wrong or whatever we, we rekindled <laughs> the friendship got a chance to really start anew mm -hmm. and and then not only 
did we work together again, but we also became great friends. Coming up on side three of the Metallica podcast, volume one, play on, sound off. I'm the voice saying the prayer and enter Sandman. It wasn't until the night that the album was being released that I was told that I would be on this song. The moment where I was, I just felt so proud of what we were doing was wherever I may roam. And I had brought some of the Misfits guys in, actually, to listen to what we were doing. And I was so proud. It's like, Bob, just crank it up. The intro to Rome, and it was giant, and their mouths fell open. That's when I knew. It's like, all right. What we set out to do, which was, and I remember, I mean, that holy fuck moment when you and I up in that house in Berkeley it was like the first day and we had Kirk's awesome riff and it was like there's a great song in, in this this riff and the challenge was like let's write the simplest song out of this riff. I, I have to say, I mean, it, my experience was like yours. I remember walking into the control room at AM at one point and hearing James's vocal mix he did and I was just standing there going. James has never sounded like that before, ever. James is really singing. And I was just kind of blown away by it all. Just like the hugeness of it and how easy it was to listen to. The Metallica Podcast, Volume 1, The Black Album. Executive produced by Lex Friedman for Art19 at Amazon Music. Produced by Lars Murray and Dennis Shire for Pop Cult. Story producers and writers, Mike Mettler and Catherine Turman. Mixing, sound design and editing, Rob Spate. Showrunner and creative direction, Dennis Shire. If you love what you've heard, give us a five-star review and share this podcast. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and ask your fellow Metallica fans to subscribe too. I'm Claire Sturgis. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Metallica podcast, Volume 1, The Black Album, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.